<laughs> it's a wrap. We will see. <clears throat> All right, that was take two for the doo doo choir. Uh, so, ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll yeah, we'll go with one do the do the do's the do whoppers. So Terry, if you heard, if you didn't hear that, then we'll uh, yeah, we'll keep at it. It gives us something to do, <laughs> right? Do. All right, let's do what we come to do which is to study God's Word. So, uh, turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's open up with prayer. Let's all um, thank God. Of course, we can... Do nothing without Him, uh, even learning His Word, coming to learn His Word without the Spirit of God, the power of God, then uh, it's it's really a waste of our time. But with Him, it, it's really quite a glorious thing and one of the most important things, if not the most important thing we can do. And so it's important to be <coughs> uh, coming to God in humility to um, to thank Him and to be reverent and thankful for the revelation of His Word. And so with that, let's pray. Our Holy Father in Heaven, thank You so much for what You have done for us in Your many, many promises. What You've done for us through our Lord Jesus Christ that confirms the many, many promises that You have given us. That your glorious kingdom is a certain future in this world. And so, though we don't know what's going to happen in the future, as far as details in the human race, we do know what will happen in the future thanks to your promises and your revelation. Thanks to your covenant to Abraham and your covenant to the church. That you will do what you have purposed, and that will be to establish your kingdom on earth with the second coming of Christ. We all, uh, in Christ, by his death, resurrection, and ascension, and our faith in that, are members of that kingdom. And though we long to be in it right now, we are living in the kingdom of the world, and we long to be with you as we groan in these bodies. But... Through your love and mercy and your patience and your forgiveness and the great power that you have poured into us, that you have given us a life, though we are here, that is above and beyond what we could have ever thought or imagined. A glorious life, a life of happiness and joy, a life of power. And we're very slow to tap into it, Father, but you are patient and that you guide us and you forgive us. And you don't smash us when we deserve it. And Father, uh, we also are instructed by you in the the ridiculous uh, uh, evil and sin that is in our old natures that we still carry with us. And we struggle and fight. So Father, we ask that through your word and our topic tonight would enlighten each of us to help us to see 
And the more that we see of you, the more joy and, 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 and motivation that we have or will have to follow you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we, <clears throat> looking at John 15 uh, yesterday, and this is, we're not going to actually go to the Gospels tonight, but this is based off of that. And on Sunday, we'll return to see our Lord's message in John 6, which is a message that the central theme of it is that a human being without him is nothing. Uh, and, and it's basically, it is that, but we have to know, so in that we have to define what is with him mean. Uh, the disciples were with him. Uh, a lot of people were with him. There were 5,000 people on that field that day who got fed the five, that got fed the loaves and fishes. And they were in his presence and they were the recipients of his power. They were recipients of his power to make bread out of nothing. Out of nothing. And, uh, but what he reveals in John 6 is that with him is in him. And so this is a concept uh, really a reality of, you know, the theological uh, title of it is to be in union with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit. And so this happens at salvation to all believers. At the moment of salvation, at the moment you believe in Christ as your Savior, then you are entered into union with him through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. It's supernaturally done to you at that moment. Uh, and when that occurs, you're in him. So, and as he said, if you're in me, I'm in you. And therefore, it's not just being with him, like you're in the same boat, you're on the same shore, you're in the same room, but that you're actually, in for eternity, united with him. And we have no, there's no earthly, um, you know, all I can think of is like Siamese twins or something. But, you know, there's, there's no earthly reality to this. That one person could be in another. The marriage bed, uh, maybe that that comes to some closeness to it because it is uh, marriage is depicted as the relationship between Christ and the church. But even that, that's just a depiction. It doesn't do it justice. The, the, the justice of it is, or the reality of it is, is that we're in him and he's in us. And this, uh, the, the re, so now, if you're the same old self, you can't be in him. Right? So when Paul makes this case when he finds out that the Corinthians are sneaking over to the temple of Aphrodite and having you know having times with prostitutes. And he said you're uniting the temple of God with sin. All right? So you're the temple of God. So what does that mean? And He's saying to the Corinthians, who are immoral and fighting and jealous and evil, uh, but they're the temple of God, and because Christ is in them. This is true for all believers. And, and therefore, we have to be radically changed, and it turns out we are. We're called a new self. It's not a remodeled self. Now, it's not a slap a paint job on it, you know, change the tires kind of thing. 
uh, we're called a brand new creature in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And, you know, the, uh, as far as justice is concerned, this makes perfect sense that to be in Christ and Christ to be in us, we have to be righteous and holy and justified. And the scriptures, especially Paul, make this abundantly clear that we're made righteous and we're justified when we believe in Christ as our Savior, that the blood of Christ is what cleanses us and, and allows us to be imputed with divine righteousness, with God's very righteousness. Romans chapter 3, just beautifully put. And <clears throat> so as that, we have this new creature, and then we also have this old self that is corrupt, and it's... It's not going to get better. And some of we'll see the passage here, the first passage we go to, is the sin nature getting worse. There's a translation in your New American Standard that seems to indicate that the sin nature day by day gets worse and worse. Uh, but that's a stretch. It's a stretch of a interpretation. Right? It's actually translated, um, not necessarily that it's getting more corrupt. What, what Paul is saying is that it is corrupt. Now, if it's getting more corrupt, you could say, well, what's the implication? That I'm not as bad in my flesh today as I will be tomorrow. So, I, in, in the back of my mind, I could say to myself, well, I'm not all that bad. See me in 20 years when I'm really bad. You know. And But the sin nature... The flesh, fallen mankind, has zero worth, uh, zero righteousness, and completely and utterly corrupt. And it's always corrupt. Anytime we pay attention to it or let it rule us, we're corrupt. Our behavior is, our thinking is, our speech is, it becomes corrupted. If we let it rule for a while, we become very corrupt that we do in our behavior but not that the sin nature is getting any more corrupt I, that doesn't seem to sit uh, right with theology here so um, <clears throat> so in uh, in being in him we're entered into the fellowship of the trinity and I, I like this. I just finished, not just a little bit ago, the first book of the Lord of the Rings. And uh, the, the first book, this is a wonderful uh, Tolkien book. It's amazing that he wrote that for his kids. And you read it, and like kids nowadays, I don't know if they could read it. <laughs> like his vocabulary and sentence structure, it's, it's not like the height of, you know, literature in terms of complexity, but it's, you know, it, it's up there. And, you know, anyway, not a slight against all kids, but um, in modern terms. But, uh, you know, the, that first book is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And, and the reason why it's The Fellowship of the Ring is because there's a certain group of people who bond themselves together in a certain purpose, which is to take this ring and destroy it. Um, and in this, you know, in a, it, it's, a, it's a picture of the Trinity Although, unlike people, of course, we're all different. The Trinity, they're, they're one. All of them are totally, fully God, which means they're all infinite. It's not three parts or three modes, 
But yet they're three in person and they take on, we see them take on different roles. And, uh, you know, we have the father who has his role, more of a planner. And we have the son who takes on his role as more of the one who's going to do the, the, the heavy lifting, if you will. And the Holy Spirit who has his role of supporting the son and to us glorifying the son. Jesus said in the upper room, the main, we're going to do a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The main role of the Holy Spirit is to reveal me to you so that you glorify me. And that's his purpose to us. And so we're, we're in this trinity, right? We're in the midst of it, say, in fellowship, in their fellowship. And that is a life. Right, so we continue to think this through and we find that what the Trinity has really brought us into is eternal life and it's their life and eternal life is a way of life. It's a type of life. It's a character of life that amazingly enough, because we're made in God's image, can be lived out by us. Sinners. Who are corrupt. <laughs> what? I, this is why angels are watching us. I don't, th- I don't think they can believe it. Well, God did. And, and so, and Jesus said, look, when you're in me, and, he's, and in John 6, he's going to say, you're going to eat my flesh. You're going to eat the bread of life, which is to believe upon me. And then the Holy Spirit, by baptizing you, is going to do all the rest and enter you into union with me. And once you are entered into union with me, you are a child of the Father. You are indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit becomes your helper, your parakletos. And in the midst of this trinity, then you have life. And this type of life is a life that is meant to be lived. I mean, it, It sounds almost like you don't have to say it, but you have to say it. Colonel Themes say all the time, just because you're alive doesn't mean you know how to live. I remember him saying that over and over. Yeah, and that's what this is. You know, the disciples have Jesus in the boat. They got Jesus in the field. They got Jesus walking on water. They got Jesus teaching them and shepherding them. And he's going to say to them, If you don't eat this bread, you have no part with me. And and they're still not going to get it. We'll return to the Gospels. We'll see that. Even after he gets into the boat and he calms the storm. Like he's walking on water. He gets in the boat. He calms the storm. They all say, is this not the Son of God? And then Mark writes down in his Gospel, but they were hard-hearted and didn't understand. So what that says to me is by the power over nature, they say this is the Son of God. But what they didn't understand is what that meant to them. You know, what does it mean to me to have the Son of God in me and I'm in Him? And they didn't get that yet. I don't think I get it yet. I mean, I get some. But 
Now think of the, the, the implications of that. So the, with this comes a life, and that life is doing. It's, now it's not just doing, it's thinking. It always starts with thinking. But it's thinking, it's, it, it's um, having control over our thoughts, having thoughts that are righteous and in, under, in, in, under the will of God, in line with God, in line with righteousness, in line, therefore, with his word. And we think by means of his word. That doesn't mean we have to memorize every word. Now, uh, if there's some part of Ephesians that you remember that, say, has impacted you, it plants a thought in your head that is true, but do you have to remember word for word what the verse was? You don't, do you? I don't either. I, I mean, because I, I, I read it so much, probably a little more, but, you know, we get all this knowledge from the Bible that presents to us true divine thought, but once that true divine thought is in our minds and we understand it, we don't have to remember every single verse. But the verses got us there. And therefore, it has to come from the Scripture. But right? You can, you can totally overemphasize knowledge and do nothing. As Paul said, you, have, you could speak with the tongues of angels. If you don't have love, you're a noisy gong or cymbal. You know, you could, there are plenty of unbelievers who are scholars who know a lot about, they, they know even languages and histories in the scripture. But do they actually do it? Do they live the life? And say the knowledge of the word of God gives us the life. And then we execute that life. And so Jesus said, look, if the branches lack fruit, they're only fit to be burned. It doesn't mean the lake of fire at all. He is saying that vine branches that don't produce are cut off and they're thrown into the fire. That's what they always did. I'm sure they still do it. So what he's saying is here, it's, it's not a salvation passage about heaven and hell. It's a passage about what is worth. And by the way, the word worth is tied to the word glory. The word glory is the Greek word axios. It means weight. The, the literal meaning of the word glory is to have weight. Something heavy. And so the, what is the, the heaviness of a person? <laughs> I won't tell you mine. Uh, what, you know, what is the worth of a person? And Jesus said the worth of a person is the branch. Is just as a branch that is united to the vine, and I'm the vine, and that branch produces much fruit. All that fruit, and all of that fruit comes from within. But it doesn't stay within. It's another false doctrine that Satan has successfully pushed. That the spiritual life is all within, and I don't do anything without I don't have compassion on people. I don't give. I don't feed the poor. I don't, you know, whatever. Whatever I'm, I say, uh, 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 I don't do any of that. I'm spiritual here. Don't ask me to do anything. And you're not spiritual there. And it turns into religion, right? It's, it's, it's a, and it's the most dangerous of religions, 
are the ones that have some truth because they suck more people in. In other words, instead of the, all of the truth of doc, all the doctrines together that are meant to come together and give us the life, they have a part of it. And so you have a denomination or a church that emphasizes a certain aspect of truth and ignores the rest. And they really become religions. That's what they are. They're religions without power. So, Jesus' way of stating our worth apart from him is that we're fit to be burned, meaning we're not worthy. And if it sounds harsh, he said, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of me. So, this will be the point of the message that Jesus gives them all on the next day. Which, if I don't... If I don't hurry up here, I'm not even going to get to on Sunday. So, The disciples are exhausted. Jesus says, let's go rest. They're, I can imagine. They're all like, rest, thank God. They come to the place of rest. They all get on a boat. They come to the place of rest. There are thousands of people waiting for them. The disciples must have been heartbroken. Jesus, on the other hand, has compassion. They are a shepherd without a sheep. So they minister to him all day. Then the disciples have a brilliant idea. They don't have anything to eat. Let's send them all home. If they all go home, we can rest. Jesus said, no, you give them something to eat. We don't have $20,000 to feed these people. It's kind of sarcastic to me, I think. But then Jesus said, well, go find out how much bread we have. And they do. They find some kid's lunch. (laughs) His five loaves and his two fishes. And they were like, see, Jesus, we don't have enough, so send them home. I'm kind of filling in the between the lines there. But Jesus does the miracle and tells the disciples to feed them all, to serve them. Right? It's going to be their whole lives. It's our whole lives. The service of others. And so... And they're, they're so exhausted. It also says in Mark's Gospel that they haven't eaten. I wonder if they were nipping at the bread as they were passing it out. Can you imagine a waiter coming to your table while he's got half your burger in his mouth? And he's like, here you go. Yeah, I'll take that back. Um, and then when they're finally fed, Jesus sends them home, sends them away. And I I love it. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They say that's impossible. And I don't know, how much later, half an hour later, they are giving them bread. You will do my will. Yeah, I know it sounds impossible. So does being holy sound impossible. But it's not. When I tell you to do something, I've given you the power to do it. So... Then they think they're going to rest after that. It was late. It had gotten dark. So again, this is all day serving. And then he tells them, now I want you to get in the boat and go to the other side. And they row and row and row. And of course, a storm comes. And the storm is not pushing them across the Sea of Galilee. It's resisting them. And uh, eight hours later, they're still on the sea rowing. It's about 3 to 4 a.m. and they see what they think is a ghost, but it's Jesus walking on the water. 
It's you know, it says in the gospel that Jesus can see them from wherever he went off to pray. He let them row. He's, so Jesus would have prayed for, you know, six or seven hours, nice, nice quiet time alone with his father, and he can see them. You can see that little blip out there on the water at night. So he's using his super Jesus vision, right? And he can see them, and he says, "All right, I'm going to walk out there." Marvelous. And then he gets in the boat and calms the sea. <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, he says, without me you can do nothing. But it's not, with, it's not having him there to make bread for you. It's not having him there to calm all your storms. It's not having him there to do whatever it is that you want him to do to make your life more comfortable and easy. This in him means faith in him and life with him. And that life is within. And it's not watching and dreaming, but doing. The branches produce fruit. The disciples said, we cannot give them anything to eat. Jesus said, yes, you will. Right? So, united with the vine, in the vine... The branches produce fruit. Jesus is telling them and showing us that he is going to give us all the power we need to do it. So we have to be in Christ to live this way in the fellowship of the Trinity. Unbelievers can't do it. And it's not that we don't watch or we don't dream. We definitely do. We watch the scriptures. Like kind of reading the Gospels is like watching the Gospels. We dream and imagine what this life is would look like in our own lives, but we must actually do. If we're not doing, we're not actually walking. And the New Testament uses that most for our lifestyle and our behavior. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and the woman walked with the Lord. It says that he came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they spoke with him there. And that's really prayer. It was like perfect prayer. The ability to walk with the Lord and speak with him. And now, this has been restored to us in a very vastly different way. and actually turns out to be a much better way. So in Christ, we are made completely new. And so we must live new. So look at Ephesians 4, 4.17. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles. Now, that Greek word there is ethnos. It means those of the world. All right. So Gentiles is, I'd rather those of the world. So it's, it's the the general population of the world or the nations, if you will, it can be translated nations, and how they live. And that was all of our lifestyles, whatever whatever that fit. So that you walk no longer, walk meaning lifestyle, conduct, no longer as the Gentiles also walk. In the futility of their mind, that word futility means uh, vacuum. It means emptiness. It means meaninglessness. Futility is fine. Uh, and, you know, that ties it to Ecclesiastes quite well, this 
meaningless of meaningless, everything is meaningless, or vanity of vanities, all things are vanity. That's a, a similar word. So they have the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So that's a nice description of the world. And it manifests itself in many ways, as you know. A person can be, and as Paul understands this, because he was an unbeliever, uh, <clears throat> as we all are, all were, that um, you know, a person can be thoroughly greedy through and through, and you know, we wouldn't see it, or not everybody would see it. Or a person could be immoral and look on on the outside, look quite moral, or you know, quite together. And of course, he understands that. So, <clears throat> but it's a it's a description of fallen man in his fallen world. So you think we would have lasted this long if God didn't control things here? All right, there's our description. There it is. Anyway, uh, so he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So there's us now. Born again believers are all new self. But it is obviously clear in verse 17 Although those who teach lordship salvation, which has become a, a popular thing because of certain preachers who have become popular in teaching it, that um, you know that if you're a true believer, that's they always throw that in. Are you a true believer? You know, what, either you believe or you don't. <clears throat> if you're telling people you believed, yeah. So I today was my first day of school, yeah, and. Uh, I uh, got to talk with this girl. She's been in other classes of mine, a young 20-year-old girl. And uh, she went to uh, her mission trip this year. The kids that are in this program go on a mission trip. And she went to Uganda. And she said they walked around. They did street evangelism in Uganda. And uh, uh, she said that she told me that the people, she said a bunch of people, you tell them about Jesus Christ and they say, yes, I believe, but I don't accept. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yes, I believe. I'm like, is it, an, is it a translation error? But they have translators with them. Yes, I believe, but I don't accept. And the only thing I could think of was, you know, kind of like in the Old Testament, you'll you'll find nations who who will claim Jehovah or Yahweh is God, but they just believe him to be one of the gods. Like they have their gods, and that nation has their gods, and we believe they're all gods, but we don't believe in one Almighty God. And maybe that's the case. But in that case, you know, you say, well, <clears throat> yeah, there's something wrong there. I believe, but I don't accept. I don't know what that means. But if someone who says they believe in Christ as their Savior, they've believed. 
Whether they have or not is between them and God. They could just be saying it, of course. But to my point, all of us, if this is a command by Paul. No longer walk like the nations. What does that mean? That all of us can. I had one person look me straight in the face and say, I never break that, I never, uh, or, or all Christians always do that. And I was like, it's a command in the scripture. I'm like, you're telling me that every Christian keeps this command? And they're like, yeah. But I'm like, then why is it a command? Uh, they don't have any answer for that. It just was convenient truth or convenient untruth. So anyway. Walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. So we have that in us, this old self, which we're told to lay aside. Uh, now, we have laid it aside. And that's a Colossians passage. Colossians passage says that we have laid it aside. This passage indicates that, well, we have laid it aside, but in our manner of life, we have to lay it aside. And manner, uh, in uh, King James, they call this, this uh, I love the translation of this world, it's a conversation. Manner, it, was a, it used to be called a conversation in, in older times. And it was your conversation, which meant how you lived. So <clears throat> we still got this ratty old, and I love as Packer, J.I. Uh, Packer puts it, an unwelcomed inmate in your prison. <laughs> he ain't going anywhere. He or she is not going anywhere. And so in this, we, we have to remember, because you can go two ways with this, and the pendulum always swings from one end to the other, and theology or doctrines get askew, and that we can be like, well, look, we're all born again and saved and forgiven, and it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live. Whatever, man, it's all grace. Just confess it and move on. But then the pendulum swings all the other way. And it says, don't you dare not live the Christian way of life or it will be hell on earth for you. And it'll be, you know, it'll be, there's this threat against you. And, and you know, it, and that if you don't do everything right, you might not even be saved. And you're, you know, you're, and then they threaten. And then on the, on that side, we're, stressed out we're stressed out with living spiritually what if i mess this up well i have messed it up should i even look at god should i talk to god should i should i pray isn't he so disappointed with me should i even walk with him i might as well just stay in my flesh because He's just so broken hearted. Like all of this, these thoughts go through our head. Like God is a person who's up there in heaven going, oh, you loser. But is he? No. He's not. So we say, cause, and this uh, human race is like this. We want it cut and dry. So one of my authors I'm reading on prayer says, you know, uh, <clears throat> are there rules to prayer? Yeah. So prayer should be all about rules. No. Because then it's like wooden. You might as well put on a tape recorder. Record yourself praying to God once. Do it properly. 
and put all your friends and relatives in there and just hit hit play every day. <clears throat> no. So should it be all just emotions? You know, the Quakers believe that God could give you revelation in prayer that was extra biblical, that was outside the Bible. So you could get, you know, you get into prayer and you get this, but you have to make sure it's not some psychological thing because you know you're, you can have your own thoughts. So you have to make sure it's from God and not from you. And so you get into this prayer and, and God can tell you things that are not in the Bible. Now it's funny, up north, so the Quakers, they, they got around Pennsylvania and that area. <clears throat> and up north, they got the Puritans who were severely doctrinal. And, you know, and, and they didn't want any of that emotion stuff. So is it so cut and dry? Is it all rules? Is it emotion? Do, <clears throat> does, do I have the grace of God in my corner when I fall? Oh, you bet you do. God, where would we be without it? The years that go by in which you've been striving and striving and striving, if you have, to live the spiritual life, and you've just fallen again and again and again and again, and God says, without condemnation, not from him, you might get it from people. Sometimes God will allow that, well, actually, he allows it all the time. <laughs> what I meant was sometimes he will allow it for your good. But <clears throat> regardless of that, God does not condemn us. And he says, let's go again. Let's go again. And you know, over years, we learn this. Because we have to be really, you know, as Paul here is writing Ephesians 4, he's very convinced about what that old self is. And it has taken him time. And how do we know it's taken him time? Romans 7. In Romans 7, we have Paul in the first person, meaning <clears throat> I, he's saying I want to do what my mind wants to follow the law, but my flesh sin wretched man that I am. And without the grace of God, Paul would have never gotten there. He behaved marvelously. Romans 7 shows us that he gives us a little insight into his... And that's a saved man who's saying that. That's a saved apostle who's saying that. That I am a wretched, wretched man. The <clears throat> So this is described here by Paul... Uh, and the walk of the unbeliever, or the walk of the people of the world, there are various lifestyles to this. And first off, <clears throat> it says that there are lifestyles of sensual pursuits. Uh, so, getting back to this, uh, walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, or the emptiness, meaninglessness of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, I mean they don't dark as opposed to light. Right? So remember Jesus said, if the light that's in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So this uh, darkness in their understanding excluded from the life of God because the ignorance of in them and their hardness of heart. They have become callous. And so this word callous means hardened. Just like he said, hardened of heart, they become callous. 
and that gives them over to sensuality. What are sensual pursuits? Well, usually when we see sensual, we think of sex, and that is definitely a big one. Uh, but it is sensual pursuits of anything that is uh, in excess or perverted. It is the opposite of temperance. Temperance is ability to have self-control. Well, it's not that sex is evil. God has given it in marriage. But <clears throat> sensuality usually falls into either sex or carousing, drinking, drugs, but there's also the pursuits of power and wealth. There's also the pursuit of fame. There's the pursuit of even piety by the ecumenical, by the cloth, by the clergy. But they pursue piety for only themselves. I'm listening to this book on the Middle Ages and the Reformation and you know, I've gotten to Martin Luther now, and Luther, when he was a monk, which he became a monk because he almost got hit by lightning, and he, th- and he gave his life to God when he almost got hit by lightning because he thought it was because of his sin. And so he becomes a monk, <clears throat> and he is the most dedicated monk the world's ever seen. He even wrote of himself, he said, if anybody could get into heaven by works, it would have been me. So he went to confession for six hours at a time. Can you imagine being his confessor? For six hours. That's why they got Luther a job outside the monastery. He was driving them all crazy. And, you know, not to be too crass, but I, and I heard this, this is in the book, that his confessor said that Luther would even confess his farts. Right? But can you imagine sitting there listening to that, listen to that, or hearing that? Anyway, uh, <clears throat> we may re- go to church, read the Bible, pray every day, and we could still walk as a Gentile. Because what? I could be legalistic. I could be rigid in my religion. I could have religion, meaning I've taken part of the Word of God and rejected the rest, and I've formed this religion for myself. I could be a self-righteous prude. I could be just plain out immoral. But what if I'm, you know, if if all the people around me say, you know, you're not really immoral at all. You're a nice person. Uh, But I'm absorbed with success. I'm absorbed with wealth. I'm absorbed with even entertainment. And I care nothing for God. I don't have time for God. That's the way of the world, the way of the Gentile. I may lust for wealth. I might not be rich by any means. I could be a pauper and lust for wealth. Any amount of money, any free money would be great. I could even be a good person in the community. But I don't have any time for God's thinking, God's ways. I don't have time for it. I've got my own life to live. Remember that quote? I think Did I do it on Sunday? I can't remember. It was from Dodds who said in his commentary on John 6, he said, you know, the, the, the world thinks that, re, that true religion or Christianity is superfluity, that it's, it's uh, superfluous. But it's, it's excess. You know, if you can get it, fine, but it's not actually necessary. Right? So if we walk the way of the Gentile, there's the dangerous result of callousness or heart of the heart, hardness of the heart 
is that we're propelled towards sensuality. And what it, and, and this makes perfect sense. If if I don't have joy and real joy, let's stick with joy. If I don't have real joy in my heart, aren't I going to go see? I'm going to go pursue it in some other way. None, we don't want to be miserable. Even the people who like to be miserable, <laughs> you know, I've met some of those. They, 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 it seems like almost they love being miserable. It may, it's sometimes because they love the attention. You know, in, in essence, it's something that they want and they love. And so this is uh, this is what, and God reveals this to us here. It's the old corrupt self who's seeking for some kind of joy and fulfillment, and he can't get it. I can't. And none of us can. We seek it, but we, and all of us do. Thank God, that's why for the grace of God. If it weren't for the grace of God, none of us would get here. Paul wouldn't have gotten this far. When he writes Ephesians, he's been saved for about 30 years. And we, in the book of Acts, he didn't like take a vacation from the plan of God. He, he was at it from the beginning. 30 years later. So we give ourselves some grace here. But don't let that pendulum swing all the way over there and that's all I do. Just keep it in the middle <laughs> somewhere. Which I, I, and for my own personal life, I see this. I see it playing out in me. And it's, oh, it's just an annoying. But say, see, if the pendulum's supposed to be, say, here, we'll put a dead set in the middle. I'll, I, we all will get it right for a while, won't we? And, we get, and this, in life, you can, you can feel it, right? The Christian way of life has an experience to it where you could say, I experience joy, true joy. I know where it comes from. That's God's joy. And you got it, and you got it, and then what? I don't know. You come over here a little bit. <laughs> and then you come over here a little bit. Then you go over here like way too much. And here we're like yo-yos. Trying to hit that sweet spot. We don't get it right all the time. And God doesn't come out to us and say, look, that's Okay. He never uses that kind of phraseology. He doesn't say, I approve of your missing the target. No, he says, I forgive you. I am with you. I will never leave you. I was, I, I, when I made the Corinthians the temple of God, they remained the temple of God when they were in the wrong temple sleeping with the wrong people. Uh <clears throat> I am always going to forgive you. Now pick yourself back up and let's go. And so what does this do for us? If God said to us, missing the mark is okay, then we would be what? <laughs> All right. Yeah, missing the mark. Uh, okay. Okay. That, that works. The flesh would be, that, that works. That works. But God says, instead of that, I forgive you. And what does this have us do? It, our response is to draw to him. Now, if he said it was okay, we'd draw to ourselves and be like, 
But no, he says, clear, it's not okay. It's never okay that you miss the mark. It's never okay that you sin. But I forgive you because of my son, Christ, my son Jesus Christ. I forgive you. And this draws us to him in thankfulness and in humility and in fear of him. And the fear, you know what, God, you could just crush me and you'd be justified. But you don't and you won't. And it draws us to him. It makes us adore him. And it's not overnight, though, is it? <laughs> this strange sheep, you know, that's, a, that's the way we are, these strange sheep. He's got to keep going to get us, going to get us, going to get us. All right, so the old self, therefore, God has nothing good to say about it, is always corrupt. I don't like being corrupted. I could tell you why it would bore you. Uh, plus, I'm a very, it's funny how now that I've learned a year of Greek, I'm more leery. I'm more cautious with it. Because when you, you know, you have a little bit of knowledge enough to be dangerous. And you, you can think you know a little bit of Greek because you learned a few words here and there. And then you realize because today was day one of the third semester. And I read in our new textbook, like, uh, oh, 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 this language is a bit more complex than what people give it credit for. So people can say, yeah, yeah, that's a present tense, which is what this is. And a present tense means, you know, it's being. But it turns out it's a present participle. It's a present participle that has a, it's articulate. It has an article. So <clears throat> what, this, what the present means, and you can say for sure that it means, is that it's continuous. But continuous like it's increasing no, you can't say that. So the New American Standard here kind of, they go they, to me, they go a little bit too far. Uh, English Standard Version. And one of the translations that I'm, I'm growing to like quite a bit, my Greek professor told me that it is really well done, is the New Living Translation. Uh, but <clears throat> it's It's expanded. So a Greek scholar started writing the New Testament for his kids. And it was so good that a publisher asked him to, to do the whole New Testament and old. And it's, a, it's um, in terms of um, kind of an expanded language. Because the New American Standard almost goes word for word. They call it wooden or clunky, uh, which... It's part of the reasons I like it. You're going to get accuracy out of the New American Standard. But anyway, <clears throat> in the English Standard Version, which is very close to the New American Standard, it's very good, it says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And see, and this makes sense to me, because what is Paul doing in this passage is he's showing us the new man, and he's showing us the old man, and he's just comparing them. And this one is created in holiness and righteousness. And this one is corrupt. Yeah, there's nothing good about it. 
uh, in the New Living Translation, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. And they're both they're both great. So, um, and it, it gets to something else that I was thinking about today. What if you uh, were brought up on the ESV or the NLT? And you memorized those verses. And I was brought up in the New American Standard and I memorized it my way. They're different words. There's a lot of, sim- obviously, it's a lot of similarity. But why are they different words? Because you're going from Greek to English. So what do you get out of all of them? If you put them all together and read them, is you get a thought. And the thought is true. And so it turns out, I don't have to memorize every word. It's, it's not bad to do it. I know I've been turned on to that a little bit lately, but I haven't gotten around to memorizing a whole lot. But <clears throat> it's nice to have at the ready, if you have a favorite passage or you know something that's, that's memorizable, meaning easy. But once the thought is planted in your mind, is that, but you'd have to remember words like this, that the new creature, the new self, is holy and righteous. Right? So as Paul says here, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Those words I would remember. What is it? Righteous? Because I can, I can know what righteousness is. Holiness is a sanctified life. But it's holiness of the truth. Right? And as it says in verse 21, the truth is in Jesus. There, that's where it is. And so if we put it all together, the Holy Spirit that Christ gave us, which he said, is going to teach you about me. And then you're going to glorify me. You're going to know me through the Spirit of God. The truth is in me. And I'm going to make you, by my death, I'm going to make you into a creature that is perfectly fitted for the truth. Because plant the truth in an unbeliever who is this corruptness. They get something out of it, sure. They might even, like everybody knows the golden rule, right? Do unto others, do unto unto you. Uh, They'll get something out of it. Will they get life? No, they can't. But what he has made us to be matches it perfectly. It mixes like water and water or oil and oil. It mixes fine. The old nature and the uh, and the new uh, the God and the old nature are like oil and water. You can shake that bottle of dressing as hard as you can. They're always going to separate. And which one goes on top all the time? Oil. Yeah, it's less dense. Yeah. I used to teach chemistry. You know, the good old days. All right. Yeah, we're never going to get to John six. I, I just love this stuff. I get chanting, and uh, so that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> but we're always getting truth. Uh, just so I don't know why I keep doing this. It's because um, my methods of preparation. Uh, have changed a bit from my education. Uh, it's a very good thing. Uh, and so I'm 
But my, I can't just copy what people tell me to do. I, I know not to do that. Uh, but I've, I've got to copy the principles, but do it in my own way. So um, you know, I'm preparing the prayer doctrine, and along the way, while I'm preparing that, I'm I'm sort of experimenting. What skip? I don't want to start the prayer doctrine until I have it down and done, and I still got a lot of work to do on that. Which in the past I would have had like the intro done, and I would just launched. I guess I can confess that now. I just launch into it, and but along the way, build it. You know, so if I've got like 25% of it done, I know I can teach that for like a month, and then you know, <laughs> and then prepare the rest. But it's it's important to get it all done first. Anyway, so I have selected passages that I want to grab. I want to grab main themes out of them that are going to prepare us for prayer and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And they're related to it. And we'll do those you know, one by one until, we, until we're ready to launch into prayer. All right. So that's the plan. Who knows if it'll work. I don't know. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for making us new creatures in Christ. The, the, this gift is incredible. You could give us all the universe. If we didn't have Christ's life, we wouldn't be with you. We, we couldn't be with you. We couldn't be in the fellowship of the Trinity. But we are. Through the incredible sacrifice of our Lord, But still, Father, we struggle with the old self and new self. They war with each other, as you say in Galatians. And we pray, Father, for strength and clarity that we may choose more often and more consistently the one that is new, created in holiness and righteousness righteousness and holiness of the truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.